Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. You can have the best technology in the world. You can have unparalleled performance. But if you cannot tell your story and people don't know about you, you can go under. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend this time with me and excited to bring you today's guest. Catherine Von Berg has leveraged her biomedical research and humanitarian background to grow, quite under the radar, I might add, one of the most interesting companies I've seen in the energy storage space, Simplify Power. She's unorthodox and counterculture in many ways, and she exemplifies the spirit of the women we are all honoring this Women's History Month, but also the spirit of entrepreneurship and leadership that any company would want at the helm. We had an amazing two-hour discussion, broad-ranging from her interview questions to her great-grandfather's impact on the cultural fabric of humanitarian efforts in England and the U.S., and how that drives her own mission, and many, many details about what simplifies up to why she created it the way she did, how they raised no money, etc. A revenue-based business that is generally kicking butt. And most of that information made it into today's episode. If you're a fan of long form, however, consider joining the Suncast Tribe, where you can get the uncut version of this and many other epic conversations. You can also check out other great founders' stories and solar startup advice and 145 other episodes archived over at www.mysuncast.com. While you're there, you can learn more about the Suncast Tribe or join the mailing list so you won't miss out when the next episode drops. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as we said in the lead-in, today's guest, Catherine Von Berg, leads Simplify Power. Catherine is long a proponent of distributed energy and widely heralded as a leader in the rise of storage for solar and storage broadly, having uh, led Simplify since 2010 as one of the three co-founders. Today, we get to dig into how and why this company came to be and is differentiated in the industry and what that means for Catherine as the leader, how she sees uh, the industry growing, et cetera. So without further ado, Catherine, welcome to Suncast. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear a bit about your background. Can you help me understand your first exposure to the energy and solar power business and kind of when you decided how you knew this is where you wanted to focus your career? My first experience was actually very personal, but that ties into how I feel about the industry at large and our company. Everything is personal. And so the stories that we capture by virtue of our customers, our partners, people who are adopting new ways of doing things, in this case, new ways of accessing and utilizing energy, is a personal story because of the impact 
that this adoption has, both personally, but also in a shift away from a reliance on fossil fuel, top-down centralized generation to more distributed, renewable and sustainable generation and, and of course future. So my personal story began with my house in California. I moved from New York City and built a house and decided to take advantage of the early SGIP rebate program. This goes back about 16 years. And I had solar put on my house such that I was net positive, not just uh, net zero, much because my children held me accountable to my own beliefs around how we contribute in our immediate lives, but also sort of uh, toward the greater good. And so to put enough solar on my home in Southern California, where in the town of Ojai, on any given day in the summer, it's 100 degrees or 105, I could run the air conditioning and still produce more power and feed that clean power into the grid above and beyond what I was using in the home. So the, I think the realization, my first realization of why storage has such an impact within the context of this solar array on my home was during the first power outage. And it was a rude awakening. Again, this is early in the industry. The first power outage, I realized that without storage or some way to store power on my property in my home meant that when the grid went down, so too did my rooftop generation. And that had real implications for me in my assessment of the return on the investment. Much of why I wanted solar, in addition to contributing clean energy into the grid and kind of the, the benefits there, offsetting my electricity bill, but it was also in the hope that I would have uninterrupted power during blackouts. Ojai has a lot of interruptions, sometimes short, sometimes long. Last summer, we had about seven in downtown Ojai. So it was a real concern. And that was the first awakening I had to the role that storage could play. However, at the time, I was only aware of lead-acid batteries, large banks of batteries that were toxic, and the industry really hadn't progressed. So I chose to deal with the outages and accept that for now. So I was net positive, and I didn't have control over my solar generation, that I would live with that until something better came onto the industry. As I understand it, something better didn't arrive fast enough. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so fast forward to 2009-10, when I met Stuart Lennox, our CTO, and Bill Seacrest, who had begun to team up with Stuart Lennox, I saw the original mobile power packs that Stuart had begun to innovate in his garage in LA, like any self-respecting entrepreneur. And he, <laughs> Stuart Lennox, was a special effects expert in the film movie industry. And of course, this is before digital was special effects. And what Stu was responsible for was coming up with solutions on site, on a shoot, whether that was in an urban area or very remote, he had to come up with solutions for accessing power to run equipment to support special effects. 
when I met Stuart and I saw these power packs, the Liberty Pack line of products, essentially to liberate those who are using uh, power on or off grid, liberate them from diesel generators, which were very often used in the film movie industry during a shoot. Diesel generators are noisy. They have, of course, pollution and other effects. And so Stuart began to look at the world of energy storage batteries. And he was one of the first innovators in the original lithium ion chemistry, the lithium cobalt. And so Stuart began innovating some of the first power packs, scaling up from the consumer electronics that the original lithium cobalt chemistry was used for cell phones, laptops. He began to scale up for larger mobile packs to support off-grid power, again, primarily in the film movie industry. When I saw those packs, my imagination was captivated thinking about having lived and traveled all over the world. And then, of course, going back to my own experience with my home, these packs were the key to creating energy independence, security, storage would allow people all over the world to generate power when the sun was up, the wind was blowing, when the grid was online, when diesel generators wouldn't be in, uh, disruptive, store that and use it when they wanted to. So to decouple utilization from actual generation that was very often limited by time constraints or distribution constraints. I am intrigued by your background. I understand that you have background in biomedical research and engineering. One of the things that stands out to me, very vocally Simplify and you as the leader of Simplify talk about this technology in particular and clean energy broadly as a transformative technology. Can you help me understand the tie-in with your background and this sense of obligation to transform lives through clean energy and storage and how that plays into your leadership at Simplify? Any undertaking, professional, educational, personal, has had at its core for me an interest, a drive to make an impact for the better on people's lives. So in the field of biomedical research, the significance of the research, whether it was drug therapies or surgical interventions, new surgical interventions, and this is going back 25 years, the impact it would have on health outcomes for users, if you will. So those principles carry over into my work with this company around energy storage and renewable generation in general. The idea of commercializing, bringing something to market, whether again, it's a drug therapy, a surgical technique, or more recently in my role as CEO of Simplify Power, bringing a product or a service to market, commercializing the R&D and product development, always the efficacy of the technology, the R&D embedded in that is what I love, but equally so is, again, the impact that that technology, that product or service has on people's lives to the extent that it's an improvement. Going back to Stuart Lennox, our CTO, when I met him and saw that he began to innovate, again, around that earliest lithium-ion chemistry, although it had cobalt, 
which is very toxic. Cobalt is the reason behind the fires and thermal runaway and other dangerous properties associated with lithium-ion chemistries. Stewart in 2007-8, before I met him, was one of the first innovators to then move to the newer innovations in chemistry, the lithium ferrophosphate or iron phosphate that we use today. Mm -hmm, That chemistry effectively eliminated cobalt. And so Stewart had the foresight, especially when we talk about energy security and renewable energy and a sustainable future, why are we going to use a toxic chemistry Mm -hmm. to store renewable clean energy? And why, if we talk about security, why use something that fundamentally puts the end user, our partners, customers at risk? Stu saw that and transitioned. The challenge there was that the lithium ferrophosphate being a newer chemistry, the supply chain had not achieved economies of scale and didn't benefit from an entrenched and established supply chain around the lithium cobalt. So when I founded the company with Stuart and Bill Seacrest, the challenge was really to offer a solution that was high performance and had such increased benefits that our higher price point could be justified because of what we were offering specifically around eliminating cobalt, not relying on a supply chain that uses child labor, warlord money, and to use a chemistry where we could innovate at a higher price point, always with the drive to lower the cost. And so over the years, our costs have reduced by over 50% in terms of where we are today, and that cost will continue to lower. But Mm -hmm. going back to your original question, all of these issues go back to my core drive to have an impact and that whatever I'm doing, whether it's the technology, innovations in terms of our business model, all of it has a positive impact and proving out that innovation can happen at all levels in a company, not just the technology itself, even how we capture our customers' stories globally, really helping have a uh, multiplier effect in their innovations, how they are innovating through the use of storage, coupling with generation sources in their homes, their businesses, hospitals, schools, and communities. That's very important to me. Yeah, I actually am glad that you mentioned the sort of the public service of the work that you guys are doing, in particular in developing countries. And we'll talk a lot, I think, about developing countries and your perspective on them and how this technology can, as you put it, emancipate. But one of the things I, f- I find interesting is that your background uh, at its very fabric has this idea of the of the of society first, community first. Do you care to share a little more about sort of the historical context in your family roots of philanthropy and public well-being and community? Sure, uh, probably the most notable ancestor that truly did have an impact on me and still informs how I think about what we're trying to execute in the company, the triple bottom line and proving that out people, planet, profit. And my great-grandfather, General Booth, founded the Salvation Army. This Salvation Army today is in some respects similar, but also very dissimilar considering the political, religious, and socioeconomic planet, uh, climate of the time. So in 1840, 
my great-great-grandfather, General Booth, wrote a book in darkest England and the way out. Hmm. And I read that book at a young age and it had a profound impact on me for a number of reasons. But probably the overriding is that he started an organization that spread throughout the UK and then his daughter, Catherine, went off to found in France and Switzerland. And it was really to address marginalized populations. At that time, population that was left out of the socioeconomic institutions, primarily the church, the Church of England. General Booth founded the Salvation Army to literally go through the streets of London initially uh, to save people and to bring them up and out of the gutter, literally and figuratively, and to bring them back into the fold. He started the first halfway houses, if you will. He created an institution in the 1840s that was one of the first, if not the first, that hired women, brought women in and gave them a means to support themselves. At that time, unless you were born into wealth or married into wealth, women were very often cut off from a means to make a living, to support themselves and their children. And General Booth set out to ameliorate that, address that in very meaningful ways. So women were brought into the Salvation Army and it's ascended through the rank. I'm neither particularly religious in the institutional sense, nor am I particularly militaristic. <laughs> and the Salvation Army kind of borrows uh, from precepts of both types of institutions. But the idea of creating an organization that had real social impact, job creation, training, education, again, looking at people that are otherwise marginalized by society, by our large institutions, and bringing them back into the fold and seeing the transformative impact of that, of education, of bringing resources. So we can talk about that in terms of energy or jobs or education. It's all related. So yeah. That book, book had a very powerful impact on me. Uh, of course, the issues he talked about at the time, and in this day and age of the Me Too movement, General Booth also talked about some very taboo subjects back then, like incest, like women suffering because of uh, molestation and, and sexual harassment, wow. and addressing that within the organization as well. So that's that's one example. On my mother's side, I have great grandmother who was involved in the uh, French underground, getting families, primarily women and children, out of Paris uh, during the German occupation. And and there are some other ancestors on both sides of the family. So all of these figures uh, loom large in my imagination, if you will, and have definitely informed my perspective in the opportunity, whatever the organization or institution, and in this case, simplify power as a, as a corporation, mm -hmm. the incredible opportunity, and I think responsibility to make an impact for the better. That is truly inspiring, Catherine. I love the story, first of all, of General Booth, which uh, I didn't quite yet appreciate or understand the depth to which uh, his work did, as you say, emancipate women uh, in, in very real ways. A particularly meaningful 
thought here and notion as we're exploring Women's History Month here in the United States. And it certainly gives us a sense of the fabric and understanding sort of culturally for you that guides your leadership principles. That, that for me is really insightful. And when I look at Simplify, I see a company that is counterculture, maybe at best, <laughs> uh, is probably one of the best words to describe it, right? Counterculture. Started off as an... Yeah, yeah I, know, I know you could riff on that, but I want to bear with me here. You started off as an off-grid company. Core philosophy is this idea of emancipation from dependency on centralized kind of top-down power systems. You and I have talked offline about marginalized communities who are away from existing infrastructure. One of the things that you stated early on is that you're captivated by the proposition of scaling up the mobile systems that Stuart was creating for off-grid applications. How is, in, within, the, within that lens, how simplified different from other renewable ventures? Probably in, in terms of how we scale. So going to that point, if you think about people who are marginalized, who live beyond the limits of the grid, how do you bring power to them without transmission and distribution? And in a way that they can control the generation and their own utilization. So it's in mobile power packs. So the Jennies that Stuart originally innovated, we still sell globally. And the Jenny packs have USB ports and AC outlets, and they can be charged with solar blankets, with mini wind turbines. They can be charged by generators or the grid. And so with a solar blanket, if you will, in any very remote community globally. Imagine the impact of a person being able to unfold a solar blanket, plug it into the Jenny pack, and then plug in their phone and their laptop. Mm. Suddenly they are their own generator. They are their own power plant. Being able to pick that up, fold it up, and carry it with them to use where they need it, when they need it, even when the sun isn't shining. It's a very powerful model and seeing it play out for people who, again, are otherwise marginalized because they simply do not have access to power. Very often in communities, even when they have generators, there's a choice between food, education, other critical resources for their families to sustain life, critical resource between those resources and the diesel generator, the diesel fuel or the kerosene or the Mm -hmm. gas, whatever it is that they need. And so alleviating that choice and freeing up precious funds to purchase food and other types of resources that also become available because you're able to generate power. So there's a multiplier effect in this. And we talked about the UN Sustainable Development Goals and the UN, those 17 goals are all about that. And the nexus of food, water, power, the impact that has to alleviate poverty, to create access to education and resources and jobs. That's also what our company is about as well, is how access to energy and renewable generation has a multiplier effect or a ripple effect and creates access to other resources that otherwise wouldn't be there because they're energy dependent. Catherine, can you give me an example around where you've seen this readily applied? Could you help us understand uh, one way, one area where you've seen this multiplier effect? Oh my gosh. Let's talk about Fiji for a moment. 
typically thought of as a resort destination, but the truth is there is extreme poverty throughout the islands in Fiji, and schools for children there typically are dependent on that diesel fuel for their generators. Uh, Even using a generator to be able to uh, power up a laptop or basic lighting. So working with It's Time Foundation, Rob Edwards, he lives in Australia, but working with him to eliminate the diesel generators. But again, we build systems that optimize the generators such that they're not obsolete. Storage optimizes any generation source. So bringing distributed microgrids, if you will, to these schools throughout the island. These schools are feeling firsthand the impact of not having to use those precious dollars for fuel and instead are able to redirect those limited dollars to school supplies and other resources, including food for children. The ROI and the social impact is tremendous and almost immediate. I'm glad that you brought it back to the ROI because I have two follow-up questions there. The first is, you know, it's not lost on most of us who understand the chemistry that lithium iron phosphate is a little more expensive than lithium cobalt. It's one of the reasons why cobalt is used more. One of the reasons why cobalt is used more um, more readily. I'd love to understand how does supply chain and, you know, the cradle-to-cradle principle you mentioned before impact your business model and your go-to-market strategy? I find it really captivating that you're able to find ways to be involved in projects where folks are earning, you know, one one hundredth of uh, the daily average income of a United States uh, individual, and you're able to make your product work. And then I'm going to follow up with sort of the cost curve of batteries generally. How using a more expensive, less developed supply chain around lithium iron phosphate impacted our go-to-market strategy. It really forced us in very real ways to innovate solutions that were far superior to their less costly competitor, the lithium cobalt oxide chemistry and batteries. And in today's market, the cobalt-based lithium has uh, translated in NMC and NCA and other types of cobalt-based lithium chemistry. So it impacted us because it really did create the necessity to innovate solutions, again, that could far outperform in terms of cycle life, depth of discharge, the rate of charge and discharge, which is critical so that you can generate an enormous amount of power coming from a battery without risking it overheating, much less catching fire. Um, So that really, in some ways, as much as a pain point it was for us, uh, adhering to those cradle-to-cradle principles and choosing an environmentally benign chemistry, it also was an impetus for us to innovate above and beyond what was the standard of the market, certainly beginning in 2010 and continuing on. Yeah, and I guess I should say, for those who might be listening to this and you're unfamiliar with cradle-to-cradle, it's the notion of regenerative design, right? This is the idea of biomimicry, an approach to design that looks at not just the raw extracted materials and where they're coming from, but the health and safety and sort of ability for the earth to metabolize, if you will, the raw inputs at the end of life of that product and then and then to be reused in additional follow-on products. So can you help us understand the difference between the way your technology versus let's call it a standard what most people are familiar with, lithium, cobalt, battery handles, 
discharge and heat? Energy storage has a direct impact on the ROI and that levelized cost of energy over time. And so what I mean by that is the performance profile, each metric on that performance profile has a financial correlate that can be built into the model. So when we talk about and work with customers in the CNI space, time of use, demand charge management, or backup power to prevent economic losses, uh, we talk about the financial benefits that are always hand in hand with the technological or the performance benefits of our solution. So I'll, I'll give an example with round numbers. If I'm missing the mark, cut me off. But okay. in the industry, you can look at batteries and typically everybody prices a battery through the lens of kilowatt hours. So what is it? What's the upfront cost on a kilowatt hour basis? And it's really important to look at and uh, discern the difference between a marketing claim and what's on the spec sheet. So a battery, rounding numbers to keep the example simple, a battery can be on the market and it's rated at 10 kilowatt hours. And for the purposes of discussion, it's $1,000. Then you look at the spec sheet. So you think you've purchased a 10 kilowatt hour battery and you have that amount of energy to use. Then you look at the spec sheet and you see that, well, depending on the chemistry, whether it's lead acid or the cobalt-based lithium, mm -hmm. that there's a shallow depth of discharge. The reason for that is a shallow depth of discharge is one of the techniques to prevent a cobalt lithium battery from going into a state of thermal runaway, right. which causes it to shut down, or as we're seeing all over the world in some of the ESS systems and utility scale cobalt storage, explosions and fires are indeed happening. So you look at the shallow, the depth of discharge and purposes of the argument, it's five kilowatt hours. So it's 50% depth of discharge. So you think you've paid for a 10 kilowatt hour battery, but based on the first metric, you actually only have five usable kilowatt hours. Then it's important to look at the rate of charge and discharge. And this is especially true for grid tied time of use demand charge management, but also in off grid systems where every kilowatt you're generating through your solar, whatever the source is, even trying to optimize diesel generators, you want to capture every kilowatt and store it in your battery for use. So yeah. the efficiency rate, how efficient is the chemistry in capturing whatever the generation source is? So we offer a 98% uh, slightly better efficiency rate. So you need to look at the efficiency rate because that'll tell you how many kilowatt hours you're able to actually get out of the battery. Mm -hmm. But the discharge rate is also important. And another technique for mitigating thermal events associated with lithium cobalt batteries that we don't have or even lead acid batteries to preserve cycle life is a longer discharge rate. And so for the purposes of this argument, again, we've started with a 10 kilowatt hour battery. It has a 50% discharge rate. So you're at five and let's say it has a five hour discharge rate. Now you realize you only have one kilowatt, five hours, hour per hour, right? So again, going back to the question of what is your storage solution? cost on a kilowatt hour basis, 
you have to get into the performance profile of a battery to really know the difference between rated capacity, usable capacity, and how that plays out in terms of the application. And the one last point I'll make on this is mm -hmm. in solar days for generating, the charge rate is as important very often as the discharge rate. And so if the battery, again, to prevent thermal events or compromising the overall health of the battery, if it has a long charge rate, say six or seven hours or even five, uh, you may not have a battery that can fully charge in a, in a solar day. And so then you need to build into the model that you may be using your solar generation for charging, but also you might need to pull from the grid or a generator, and then that adds to the cost. Well, one of the things that we see happening in storage right now is what might be correlated to the type of cost curve reduction that we were seeing in solar panels a decade ago. How do you foresee prices coming down in storage? And how do you foresee solid state batteries affecting the current market trend? With regard to solid state and other types of innovations across chemistries and, and whether it's anode, the cathode, the separator material, all the ingredients that go into the design of a battery, innovations are always happening and it's a matter of debate on how soon they will be commercially available. For our company and how we position ourselves in the market, our IP is in our design and architecture, how we build our batteries, and then also in our manufacturing processes and materials used. So we're positioned, given the innovations going on globally with regard to energy storage, we will be able to leverage those newer innovations in chemistry and, of course, anode-cathode material and build that into our architecture and manufacturing processes. So we look at these innovations and are always certainly focused on the road to commercialization and look to really being able to take advantage of that. With regard to costs coming down in general, lithium is one of the most ubiquitous elements on the planet and it's very non-invasive when it comes to mining, meaning lithium rises up on large salt flats. So the mining of it is very much uh, environmentally benign. Of course, it's non-toxic as well. There needs to be more, and there indeed is more access and mining, if you call it that, of lithium globally. That continues to happen, and that, of course, drives down the cost of lithium as well as other materials. And as the supply chain uh, becomes more and more entrenched as a solid industry, which it is, that's already driving down the cost. And of course, it will continue to. Hey, simple question. When was the last time you were truly delighted at a customer support interaction? My friends at Helioscope do their best to delight their customers every single day. And that's why dozens of solar developers have claimed Helioscope has the best customer support they've ever seen. Not just in the solar industry, but in all their interactions. See for yourself. Head to mysuncast.com and click the Helioscope banner on the homepage. And as a Suncast listener, you'll be gifted an extra 30 days to your free trial. That's 60 free days to see what Helioscope can do for you. Find out why more solar companies trust Helioscope than any other design program on the market. 
Does your current asset management software provider call just to check in? If you're already using PowerHub, well, I know your answer is yes. See, when you're using PowerHub's asset management software, your customer success specialist is your guide and advocate. PowerHub's not just a software provider, they're a partner for your growth. And their seasoned customer success team is known throughout the industry for helping developers spot and address core business inefficiencies. They have the largest customer success team in the industry for a reason, so that your business grows, not just bigger, but better, with PowerHub in your corner. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Do you feel like we're close to the point where it reaches that tipping point, that moment where the flywheel starts to spin and energy storage gets integrated into every project? Well, I feel like we really are there. Of course, price is still coming down, but one of the issues that I think is a challenge for the industry in general, and certainly for us as a company, is to look at the true cost of energy. In other words, renewables and storage are always being compared to the entrenched fossil fuel industry, large top-down generation, transmission, and distribution. But if you actually take a look at the subsidies that serve to still, and even today, buoy the fossil fuel industry, and, and just top-line dollars, and it depends on what report you look at, but for fossil fuel in the U.S. alone, oil, natural gas, coal, uh, has received about four, $414 billion for oil, natural gas, $140 billion, and $112 billion for coal. Um, that's $2,015, for example. So effectively, fossil fuels are getting about 65% of total energy subsidies, 65%. And yet there is this perception in the industry and we're always asked, and, and I think your question hints at this assumption that renewables are still not cost competitive. Energy storage is still not cost competitive. But if you take away 65% of overall subsidies in the U.S. alone for oil companies that are on record to be some of the most profitable companies globally, mm-hmm. If you take away those subsidies, don't even redirect them to renewables, just remove the subsidies, renewables are cost effective and we have reached that tipping point. And this is where market forces such that subsidies are creating really create a bias that isn't grounded in the true cost of energy as people understand it. Yeah, and this is evident uh, nowhere better than places like Costa Rica, which don't have an an inherent fossil fuel industry and are already operating at 100% renewable energy. Exactly. So so to your question, it's already cost effective. And for us as a company, that's always been revenue-based. We have not taken VC money. And since 2010, our focus has really been on efficacy of technology and, of course, the financial benefits of that technology, it has to pencil out. And so we built a company on the efficacy of the technology and the efficacy of the economic model. And that's why we're global. And that's why we've been able to grow like we have. We don't rely on subsidies. 
and anybody in the renewable industry when, again, renewables are getting about 16% of the budget and fossil fuels are still getting 65%, you have to look at that question again. Have renewables reached parity? Has storage reached parity? Are they cost effective? Indeed, yes. Uh, the International Monetary Fund in their report said globally, pre-tax subsidies come to $333 billion. If you add post-tax subsidies, environmental costs, all the rest of it, it comes to a staggering $5,300,000,000. They also continue to highlight the top 20 economies in the world. What's the multiplier effect if they take a fraction of those subsidies dedicated to fossil fuel and redirect them to renewables. And the there you go, that word, a transformative impact on an economic level, on a social impact, environmental health level. And all of those, of course, have financial correlates as well. You also mentioned, and I want to gloss over this, that you guys have taken no VC money. And it's funny that uh, not funny, I think it's in, uh, apropos that you bring that up. A lot of folks point to VC money in the in the uh, venture capital industry as sort of synthetic subsidies for renewables and many other and many other segments, right? Why did you choose to go the bootstrap route? And how do you feel like that has affected your ability to scale or, or perhaps protected you from certain uh, dangers in the market? I think it came again, perhaps from my bias that the efficacy of the technology matters proving it out through actual field-based performance and all the economics that go into proving it out as well, not beyond performance or hand-in-hand with performance. The pitfalls that I think I, our founders and board have seen with companies that take on an enormous amount of VC funding, it doesn't necessarily protect you from bankruptcy or technology that doesn't perform. And uh, case in point, now these are just top line numbers, but Aquion, I believe by the time they filed for bankruptcy, they had raised about 190 million in equity and debt. Wow. And I believe they had about a six or seven year spread. And if you look at that, also competitors that we uh, confront in the market today that are in their C, D, E, F round of raising capital, and they still hemorrhage millions of dollars a month. Right. And if anything, they are buying market share by lowering their prices, selling at cost or under cost, no margin. And we have to deal with that in the market. One might ask, is that a sustainable business model? Maybe it is. I'm not saying we have the answer, but what we're Mm -hmm. trying to prove out again, is innovation in terms of our business model and how we execute as well. So we saw our approach of bootstrapping being revenue-based as a way to prove out very tangibly this triple bottom line and that we have to be profitable. We have to have an impact on people. And that includes the people in our company, not just our customers and partners, and of course, the planet. What is our supply chain? What are the raw materials going into uh, the products that we're making? So to do that without VC money based on revenue, it's 
not easy. <laughs> some, some might argue then you don't scale quickly enough. But actually, I feel we feel from how we look at the market and where the company is that we're growing in lockstep with the market. And sure, we may miss out on some competitive advantages by buying market share, as I said before, selling at cost or lower. But overall, we have a steady trajectory year over year, doubling, tripling. Uh, we're global. And we're very interested in 10 on proving this model out. Is there anything in particular about your team or your global, your sort of approach, the market you chose that you would attribute your success to? Anything that I might look at and say, hmm, I could actually probably duplicate that model for my clients. I would have to go back to impact again, because if you're a company that is relying on, on revenue to grow and to continue the R&D, then you have to be very focused on the customer, on the performance of your solution in the market. And there have been problems for companies, some of our competitors that have now gone out of business in terms of how their technology, their solutions played out in the market. And so whether it was beta testing on customers or introducing solutions that were too early Again, VC funding, an enormous amount of influx of capital can protect a company from some of the pain points or the messages that come back from the market when you have failed systems. I think it really is this intense focus on the customer, our partner, the solution that we're actually creating in the field. How does it impact their lives for the better on an economic level? And, and then also in terms of how they think about and access not just power, but other resources, being very aware of that and making sure that we are executing on that. The thing that comes up for me as a salesperson is what I hear you saying is customer selection and being really intentional about who is the right customer and who is not the right customer is critically important in that early stage. Like wasted time is death for a company like yours. Yes, although I can't say that we haven't wasted time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a, that's what I'm going to ask is how as a leader, how as a leader do you help your team? You know, that customer focus doesn't come from just putting a sales plan together. How does it become institutional? How have you survived for nine years with no outside funding, revenue-based, with a higher cost product, and predominantly serving underserved markets of the world where they don't have the disposable income when competitors like... Aquion are trying to serve corporate clients that can afford it and don't mm -hmm. want to. Again, it has a very kind of organic growth in the market by virtue of offering solutions for real pain points. And so in 2010-11, I never thought that we would begin to work with the Department of Defense. I thought humanitarian, off-grid, remote communities, high impact, and actually the DOD was struggling with forward operating bases in Afghanistan and Iraq. There were more deaths as a result of our soldiers protecting fuel convoys than there was in combat in the early days of Afghanistan and Iraq. And on forward operating bases that were very often protected if convoys were not, the DOD came to us looking for a way to either optimize diesel generators or displace them. And so we began to innovate batteries that 
combine both long-term storage and immediate power output and couple those just with generators. And we created with the U.S. Army data and a program of 80% fuel offset for forward operating bases in both those countries. That fuel offset had enormous savings for the DOD. Uh, estimates of $600 to $800 sometimes per gallon of fuel by the time it arrived. So it had an economic impact and it, it saved lives. We then used that model and then began to introduce solar generation. And it's this kind of organic growth around a solution that's actually making a difference, again, on an economic and on a uh, tactical basis for the DOD. That model then we were able to roll out to other areas of the world where a similar solution was needed. Again, not making generators obsolete, but optimizing them. But at the same time of working overseas with the DOD homeowners in California that were dealing with repeated power outages and blackouts and a failing grid and infrastructure. So it's a different ROI and a different cost basis, but that model proved out very well for us as well. And so the long cycle life, depth of discharge, all of these benefits of our solution played out across markets with products that the same product that sold into all those markets. So we weren't innovating five different batteries across five different manufacturing lines, creating efficiencies around that as well. You as the CEO have to be militant in a certain way with the efficiency of your organization, especially in a world where you aren't, you don't have to have these synthetic subsidies we talked about. Can you take me to a point in time where you or someone on your team identified that there was this DOD opportunity and that that aligned well with the type of chemistry or the type of philosophy that you guys had? I think that would go back to when we were first contacted by a solutions provider, a primary contract holder for the DOD. Got it. So someone, it was and, an inbound. Okay. Yes. And the inbounds kept leading to word of mouth and more recommendations. Who grabbed inbound. a hold of that? To give you a market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I did. You did, yeah? <laughs> You're like, guys, yeah. hey, shaking somebody days, by the collar, I can imagine. Yeah. Well, in the early days, there were five of us. And then there were seven, and I was involved in everything from R&D to the manufacturing line to business development, marketing. And and to give you an idea of how we grew in 2010 to 2015, we didn't have any marketing or, or really sales going on. It was all word of mouth inbound. And in 2015, Tesla announced the Powerwall. And in 48 hours, we were eclipsed by a brand and a marketing platform. Tesla did an enormous value to the entire global industry, if you will, around the role that storage could play. Our our challenge, and it was a very tough time for me as a CEO, because we had been executing on that model that Tesla so effectively captured. And I had been so focused on technology performance, building out a company based on those market metrics that I hadn't really considered the importance of brand and story. And I soon came to realize you can have the best technology in the world. You can have 
unparalleled performance. But if you cannot tell your story and people don't know about you, you can go under. So that really was a time where we realized, I realized we needed to get a website. (laughs) We needed to hire some marketing know-how and begin to develop our story. And out of that, I realized this isn't just our story. This is our partners, our customers' stories. The the stories that people have all over the world in terms of uh, what's happening in their lives and, and trying to create almost a virtual community through this impact. And it was in 2015, again, going back to the realization that marketing and brand matters And if you don't, uh, you can have the best technology and solutions, but if no one knows about you and you can't tell your story, you will go under. Catherine, I believe that readers are leaders and vice versa, leaders are readers. Can you give us some insight into what books you have recommended or gifted the most and why? Oh, goodness. I read uh, nonfiction. I tend not to read fiction. If you ever want an incredibly compelling story that seems too fantastical to be real, read an account, a historical account of a significant figure or someone a contemporary. So I do read books about or written by other CEOs. Probably one of the most gifted books I've ever given is Pro- Malcolm X autobiography. Malcolm X? Yes, Malcolm okay. X autobiography. I'm okay. answering you truthfully. That is the book I have probably given as a gift more yeah. than any other book. And why? Because it chronicles what happens, especially with regard to America, but having lived overseas, this one can extrapolate from lessons that are portrayed in Malcolm X specifically. But what happens to a whole group in our country that are marginalized, that are denied access to fundamental resources like education and job training and and institutional racism and bigotry and what is the outgrowth of that and byproducts. So crime, drugs, all sorts of things because people are denied access to fundamental resources. And then the transformative element of people who transcend those limitations and lack of resources through individual volition and and sheer will and smarts and creative thought. So Malcolm X says he transformed and reinvented himself through prison. Mm. It's a look at our prison systems and uh, discussions around that and then how he became a leader and had an impact globally, right. not just in the U.S. So it's a very poignant story, again, going to a very human level of how a lot of issues that we struggle with today, politically, religiously, socioeconomically, that we still struggle with. And through that individual's journey, they are called to the surface. And there are both challenges and solutions that are called to the surface, and it's very provocative. Are there any particular nonfiction books that have shaped or influenced your leadership style? You know, there are, of course, there are books I've read on leadership itself. But mm-hmm. again, I find the most meaningful lessons, if you will, uh, or messages through other stories. So going back to my biomedical days, there is a book 
the structure of DNA, the title, the double helix. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the story of the researchers that basically captured DNA and what that did for the whole field of biology and genetics. And, and again, it's told through the personal journey of the researcher and other researchers that were focused on bringing this to light. And there were so many other researchers that were involved and everything from competition to collaboration and getting it not first to market, but being the first and what that means. Some of our tragic human, almost base instincts, how they can play out in research and labs competing, competing for resources, accolades. It's a fantastic story told through a very personal narrative. Early in the interview, you said that your uh, great-great-grandfather, General Booth, wrote a book that impacted you. What was the name of that book? Ah, yeah, that would be on my list of impactful books. In Darkest England and mm-hmm. The Way Out. And it's still in yeah. print? Uh, well, I have one of the copies on my shelf. I don't think I, you can find it in old bookshops, perhaps. I don't know, actually, because I have one of the original copies signed, of course. But that book is very impactful, especially if you think about he was thrown in jail. He was imprisoned and he was stoned in the streets, wow. as was his daughter, Catherine, my namesake. His grandchildren and great-grandchildren came to some state in England, uh, some came to the U.S., Maud Ballington Booth. His granddaughter founded the Volunteer League of America. And so that, that whole line kept innovating really around this idea of making an impact in people's lives. The Volunteer League of America was focused on the prison system, but Anyways, yes, I would have to say that was one of the more influential books that I read in my life. And I love to see that it has translated into uh, your carrying the torch as uh, for your namesake. Is there a particular habit or consistent practice that you feel has contributed to or had the greatest impact in your life? If reading could be considered a practice, and writing. writing. Writing is a personal outlet. I have volumes of writing since I was a kid. Probably nothing will ever come of it, but... Writing is a real outlet for me. I feel like it's also a dying art. And being a voracious reader, when I don't know or understand something, I just start reading, including when I became pregnant and became a mother at 34. I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) and uh, (laughs) started reading my way through all the books available. My wife can identify, yeah. And writing is cathartic. So I might ask then as a a follow-up, how has reading become a habit for you? Where does that become a practice? Every morning, no matter how early or late I get up, the first thing I do is read anywhere from 10 to 20, sometimes 30 minutes. Mm. And I I have a stack of maybe five to seven books at any time that I'm reading through contiguously. I love being able to do that. It's amazing how threads and themes from one book that might seem entirely different Mm. are in, in another story. So it's a practice in the morning, literally before I do anything. And then at night, I, I always end the day with reading as well from that favored stack. Wow. I have whole bookshelves sh- lined with books that are next on the list. You know, I've- <laughs> Yeah, no Kindle? For, you prefer the paper? 
You know, I tried the Kindle and I thought, oh, it's fantastic, especially since I read many books at once right. and I can certainly carry it with me. I'm old school. Maybe that's related to my age, but I love the smell and the feel of books. I also trash my books. I write in them. I underline. I dog ear pages. And I love going back to finding favorite passages that I've highlighted. Whenever I gift a book, I buy a new one. I do not share my books except uh-huh. with my children. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel the same. They, they, they become like coveted friends, you know, like, and I love that you said, except to my children, because for me, uh, maybe this is a problem, maybe this is further than I expected to go. But for me, when I am underlining, lining, uh, I'd love to know if I'm the only one who does this. Somewhere in the back of my mind, when I'm underlining and highlighting, since I was in my 20s, the thought has always occurred to mm. me, my children will read this one day and get to see how I think. Oh my gosh, absolutely. So my children are 24 and 23. I've been a single mom since they were very young. And they have on their bookshelves books that I read in high school, like 1984, classic George yeah. Orwell. They, they use my paperback from when I was in high school and got to read through it and see all my insane notes and wow. arguments. And, and it's actually pretty funny having debates with them about a theme I picked up or something that I didn't agree with that they do. It's been wonderful, actually. And they were not embarrassed to have an old ratty copy of Catcher in the Rye, for example, when their friends had the new books, sometimes taped because the pages were falling out of the old binding. I love it. They took these books and used them. So, yes, I, I love that you said that because I sometimes absolutely thought that and wondered if my children would ever read these stories. And if, if they did, could I preserve the book? So honestly, my family can't stand it. I've been carrying around books since I was in high school, boxes and boxes and yeah. boxes moving throughout New York, but everybody else in my family is the same way. Our partners have always hated the prospect of a move with anybody in our family. That's <laughs> 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 the biggest burden are the books. Yeah. I love that you said that. I don't think I've met anybody who shared that. How old are your children or you haven't embarked on that yet? I have. Yeah. I'm literally standing here in my office in tears. I have an eight-year-old who is a voracious reader. He plowed through the Chronicles of Narnia, not once, but twice in, in, in one month. In one month at seven years old, he read the Chronicles of Narnia twice wow. in one month. And then I have a five-year-old who will be six in May and I have a two-year-old. All wow. boys. You have your hands for all boys. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, that's we wonderful. Wow. We do have our hands full. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I'll say, I don't know if I've said this to people, but it, it's something I definitely feel and think about. I am a better CEO because of becoming a mother. That doesn't mean that if you don't become a parent, a mother or a father, that you won't be an adequate or a successful CEO or whatever you do in life. But I do feel that there are so many deep lessons learned as a result of becoming a mother, perhaps some of it being a single mother, reserves I found within myself, capacities I never knew I had, and nor would I perhaps if I hadn't become a mother. And I feel very strongly about that. Catherine, where can folks find you? If they want to be in touch, if they want to reach out to you, how, sh- how would you encourage them to do that? Twitter is at C.E. Von Berg. 
C-E-V-O-N-B-E-R-G. C is yeah? in Catherine, E is in Emery, V, Victor, O-N-B-U-R-G. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Wonderful. And then the website for those who don't know? Yes. Uh, simplifypower.com, S-I-M-P-L-I-P-H-I-P-O-W-E-R, simplifypower.com. Fantastic. Well, we always end with a final bold prediction. Catherine, what one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? I really believe given some of the innovations, and this has to do with quantum mechanics as much as anything we think about that's relevant to innovation in our industry, that energy itself is going to be something that is all around us that isn't captured necessarily in mm. large boxes, whether that's solid state or liquid or chemical, but we are going to be able to harness energy and utilize it in ways that defy our current imagination. It has mm. to do with the physics behind velocity, magnetism, a whole bunch of disciplines coming together and that will free us up from this idea of having to carry around our energy and storing it again in boxes and however large and small. So what that means is really a fusing of both energy generation, but also storing it. It's going to be one and the same generation and storage. Catherine Von Berg is the CEO of Simplify Power philosopher, humanitarian, single mother, and inspiration <laughs> inspiration to many in our industry. Thank you for joining us on Suncast. I look forward to this episode airing. I look forward to the reaction from uh, our tribe. I'd love to hear what you guys thought of this. Uh, do reach out to Catherine. Let her know what your thoughts are. And if you have any questions, hit her up on Twitter. We'll link to that in the show notes, of course. Thank you for being on the show, Catherine. This was a real joy. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed this discussion, really, as uh, what you created, and I look forward to being able to continue it at some future date. Absolutely. That whiskey at SPI. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a wrap on today's conversation, Energy Warrior, but the dialogue does not have to end there. Did you enjoy that raw intimacy of our discussion today? Do you like the term Energy Warrior? I did. In fact, I asked on Twitter, and as of the recording of this, over 50% of you prefer Energy Warrior to Solar Warrior, which surprised the hell out of me. <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, I long for more moments like those I shared with Catherine here today. If you've loved it as well, would you please take the time to show Catherine and I some love on Twitter or LinkedIn by sharing this podcast with your friends, family, bus driver, babysitter. Your recommendation is perhaps the highest compliment we could receive. As usual, I was taking notes during the interview and have listed those resources and highlights, as well as social media links and books and everything else from the discussion over at mysuncast.com. So if you want to learn more about today's guest or past episodes, just click on the listen link, which will take you to the episodes page. You can get those fantastic resources 
and many others. While you're there, do also check out the Suncast Tribe, where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. If you click on that member button, you'll learn how to gain access to the uncut interviews and tribe exclusive that don't make it into the public Suncast feed, like some parts of this interview with Catherine. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be notified when the next episode is out, or perhaps where I'm going to be next. Hey, shout out, by the way, to all the Suncast Energy Tribe who showed up to our party here in Mexico City during Solar Power Mexico last night. I'm still recovering. Glad you could make it. Solar Power Puerto Rico is happening just around the corner in about a month. In fact, if you're planning to be in Puerto Rico, please consider coming in a day early and hang in with me and a select group of Suncast friends at an exclusive one-day mastermind meeting. There's still time. Details are only available to my Energy Tribe newsletter subscribers, so be sure you're on that mailing list. Hey, I am so happy that you chose to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Energy Warrior. It's half the battle.